Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, December 13th. On today's show, we are joined by a man I am eternally grateful for as his website, Tennis Abstract, is foundational to the success of all of our Crack Rackets content. Of course, I'm referring to our dear friend, Jeff Sackman, who joins me on the podcast once again today to help me break down our 2023 three ATP confounding all-stars. We discuss the players we have the most questions about. As we exit this 2023 season, we discuss the ceilings of each of those players moving forward, what went right or wrong for each of these players throughout the course of the year. We debate what they can do to improve moving into 2024, how likely is that improvement, and so much more. It is always a treat for me to have Jeff on the podcast as, again, no one thinks of the game more analytically, more mathematically than he does. And to hear his insights, to hear directly from the tennis abstract source itself, again, it is the pleasure of all pleasures, perhaps, I have in doing this podcast. So thrilled for all of you listeners to be able to hear my conversation with Jeff before we get to it. Just a couple of things I want to plug, bring to the attention of all of you Cracked Rackets fans. If you are looking for a additional content, head on over to the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. We've got interviews up now this week with world number one doubles player Austin Krejcik, world number 51 ATP singles players Yannick Hoffman as well to discuss each of their respective breakout 2023 campaigns, where they all go from here, what clicked so perfectly over the past year, and so much more. Again, two fantastic conversations that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, I also want I'd let you all know that it's officially begun. We're counting down our top 10 teams heading into the 2024 college tennis season over on the Great Shot podcast feed. You can hear from myself, Chris Halioris, John Parsons, and our cast of experts as we break down what all of you listeners can expect over the course of January to May's dual match season. Again, all that content available wherever you listen to your podcast. So make sure you go subscribe, like, review not only this show, but the Great Shot podcast feed, the Cracked Interviews podcast feed, as well as our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel too. To ensure you don't miss out on any of our content. Also, a shout out as always to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at Cracked Rackets, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the one and only, our dear friend, Jeff Sackman. <laughs> Joining us on the podcast once again today to help name our 2023 confounding ATP All-Stars is a man who, some would argue, is responsible for 75% of the content you hear on this show. Of course, he is a man who has blessed us with his presence many a times. He's one of the co-founders of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, but most importantly, founder of Tennis Abstract. It's our dear friend, Jeff Sackman, joining us once again. Jeff, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm always glad to be here. Doing great. 
Let's uh, ready to roll. Yeah, it is great to have you. And again, our topic for today, confounding ATP All-Stars. Who are the players that confuse us the most coming out of this 2023 season? It can be for any reason. You know I like to play loose with the rules. I don't give guidelines as much as titles and then allow you to work within that title. But before we get into any specific names, I do want to ask 10,000-foot view more broadly as we look back at this 2023 season, a season that at the highest level at least, was defined by continued dominance of Novak Djokovic. There's not much confusing about that for fans of the ATP Tour who have seen that story play out for 15 years now. You also had the continued emergence, consolidation at the top of the game of Carlos Alcaraz. You had Medvedev stretches. You had Sinner stretches. I don't know how confusing the top-level headlines were from the 2023 season. I will say after that, I think things were fascinating. I am very, very unsettled in my takes coming out of 2023 beyond the top four. I'm curious if you feel the same way. Uh, yes and no. Uh, I've got a top three player on my list of, of most confounding. Um, I, it kind of depends on how you, how you define confounding because they're with guys like that. You're not confused about how good they are. Obviously they're, or you're not confused about whether they are good. You're just confused about just how great they are, how, how consistently they can execute. And that is, um, that's the issue with one of my guys who's someone you've already named. Interesting. Yeah. I just, for me, it comes down to that race for number five in the rankings and, perhaps more broadly in the minds of the tennis populace. That, to me, is where things get so confusing because you come off of a year where, you know, number five in the rankings is Andre Rublev. I don't know if anyone thinks Andre Rublev is actually the fifth best player in the world in a year where, yeah, he won a 1,000-level title, but the 0-3 ATP Finals performance kind of perfectly encapsulating his struggles against the best in the world. I think it was a 5-9 and nine record against top 10 opponents, something like that this year. The fact that a guy like Kasparut, two in the world last year, made two slam finals last year. Yeah, he made another slam final this year. Beyond that, did he do anything memorable? Probably not in the minds of most. You could say the exact same thing about Stefano Tsitsipas after his Australian Open final run. Yes, Zverev, in my opinion, I test-wise showed the highest level, but like that was three, four months of Sasha Zverev and given his struggles remain the same, are you really comfortable putting him in that number five spot? I guess it's that no one of the next gen or next gen 2.0 crew, even a whole Garuna whose first six months, he's fifth best player in the world. Last six months, he's the 72nd best player in the world or something like that. I, like, I have some confusion. I think, I think you might be expecting too much out of your number five player. Okay. Like I, 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 I'm not sure what the what the stats would show, but if you go back and look at what number fives do at ATP Tour Finals, I'm guessing you're going to find a lot of O and threes over the years. Not always, but they'd they'd be expected to lose two of those matches in a round robin group. I mean, yeah, I, I that it all seems kind of normal to me. I mean, I, I agree. Like you can make a case for a lot of those guys. Maybe Rublev seems a little weak, although I wouldn't have said that going in. Um, I agree with everything you said about the players you talked about. Just, I don't know, that 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 feels like that feels like a good thing. I'm not super confused to have a bunch of guys in the five to fifteen range who all are kind of I'm a little bit unpredictable. But then I don't know. It's um I'm not sure it would be better if you had a clear cut number five. 
That's fair enough. I guess why, and we did a full podcast on this last week when we were doing our State of the Unions. I love to have themes in the off season because it just keeps me on track, Jeff. That, that's how my mind works. But, you know, we did a full thing on the original next-gen ATP crew, those players born 96 to 99. And why I wanted to do an entire podcast on them is because, again, age range-wise, they're all 24 to 28 years old now. They should all be in or entering the primes of their career. And that none of them is other than Daniil Medvedev, who sits in a group of his own right now, that no one else in the group is definitively in that top tier or even sniffing it coming out of this season. Like That's a red siren fire alarm for the original next-gen crew because it's like, if you're not going to win now, when are you going to win? And this is getting ahead of myself. I want to ask you about this at the end when we've moved past our confounding ATP All-Stars, but listeners know that I'm on Tennis Abstract every day. I have told this joke to other people on the podcast, so I want to give you credit. It's one of my favorite you've told, which is that you know precisely when the Gruskins are having Thanksgiving dinner because you look at the Tennis Abstract <laughs> stats and you see they dip off and you go, oh, okay, they're eating at 4.30 this year, uh, which again, great joke by you, start to finish, mazel tov, my friend. Um and like you recently wrote, and you sent me the piece this morning, your additions to Tennis 128 and how Iga Svantec has now risen to a level where she needs to be included. I'm blanking on the name, but again, another great joke by you. You're not going to drop off player number 128, so it's going to be a Tennis 129 now moving forward. I love that fact. The pyramid should get bigger as new names enter that conversation. You mentioned that the next closest guy... It's not an Alcaraz. It's not a sinner. It's a Sasha Zverev, who I have said on this podcast has done everything but win a major to consolidate a Hall of Fame career. It's like he's done everything but that final major victory. And to see statistically you enunciate that argument was confirming for me in ways I always love your website to be like there's some urgency now. I guess that's why I'm confused, and you'll see that theme throughout the course of my list. It's like, hey, if it's not now for this group of guys, like, do we, is it time to write them off and start to focus on that Alcaraz, Sinner, Runa generation? Well, for Alexander Zverev, he's he's 25 years old, or is he 26? 26? He's, I think he's 26, but he's like the oldest 26-year-old we have in the world because he's been around. He, he is, but on the other hand, that means he's got 10 years to be where yeah. Djokovic is now. So the biggest risk is whether he writes himself off, right? Or, I mean, if, if he gets injured and, you know, is forced out, it, it's, it happens. But, I mean, he's – the talent is obviously there. I mean, it, for me, the issue has always been maturity, tennis IQ, something like that. I don't really know what to call it. And it, it, it all seems of a piece to me with the um, – the sexual harassment or violence or whatever we're calling it allegations against him and the kerfuffle he had that went to court with his former manager. Uh, all this stuff feels like a player who's, I mean, just not super mature. And it, it especially contrasts with some of the other players like Alcaraz and center who seem to arrive on the scene as like 40 year old men in 18 year old super athlete bodies, because whether it's because they've been PR trained to death or whether they're just naturally that kind of person, I don't know, but Zverev is not that. And you see it in the way he plays too. I mean, he, he does not always, he, he doesn't always play big points the right way. He, you will see him get frustrated and just go away for a while on court. And I think in a past generation, you could get away with that and you, you could still win a slam. Now, 
maybe you can you can score one big upset that way, but you're going to beat Alcaraz and then Sinner's waiting for you or Djokovic is waiting for you and you can't do it. But I mean, give him 10 more years of majors, give him five, six more years to actually mature. Maybe something will happen. Like he's like, I don't find easy to root for him, but it's easy to imagine a path where he still retires with five slams and maybe, maybe even a year at number one, that seems like a big ask, but I mean, he, he could fill in those blanks. Like it's just, it's just a matter of whether, whether he decides he's done. Very well said. One of my favorite statistical things about Zverev, I was joking about this with I don't know if we can call him a mutual friend, but you know Gil Gross pretty well, or you're aware of his presence. Um, So we're going to say mutual friend. Um, I mean, he's my sworn enemy and eyebrowed nemesis, but also very dear friend. Um, Looking at the Zverev serving statistics, because it's right, it's like the same yips still exist, and he will get passive on court and rely on his physicality and try to outgrind you, which, by the way, to his credit— Every Alex Zverev match, people abhor watching because it always breaks down into Zverev's terms. Like, even against the best players in the world, it still turns into pushy, weird tennis. And the reason that's the case is because his serve just keeps him in the match now. You look at the nadir for the serve. He had a 7.2 double fault percentage 2019. He's now at 3.7% for that double fault percentage. It has improved every year for five years running. Yeah, crazy. The other impressive thing is, like, the second serve hasn't actually gotten better. He was at 44.2% in 2019. He's at 49.2% now. Yeah, a little bit better, but watch it, and you don't see any eye test progression. What he's gotten better at is he just doesn't miss his first serve anymore. He's gone from 66.9% to over 70% first serves the past two seasons. It's like, he's like, you know what? I hate hitting the second serve so much that I'm actually just going to perfect the first serve. And it's a weird statistical thing for him him but again like a guy who paperwise has all the tools there's no doubt he can do anything he wants on a tennis court it's yeah that maturity that ability to put together the two-week seven match stretch you need to win a major hasn't shown it yet you know again for Rublev same thing four straight years at the ATP tour finals he's a top eight player and that's exceptional. Like, it depends what your barometer for life is. Mine is, I don't want to have to work a second job ever. And I can say pretty confidently that Andre Rublev's never going to have to work a second job. Like, he'll be fine after his tennis career, no matter where it goes after that, even if the clothing brand fails. But like, I was going to say, ironically, you say that on the very day that he announced yeah, his clothing brand. Yeah, that's true. Even if it fails, he's going to be fine. Money perspective. Does he have, you know, he's still 26. He's a 97 as well. Does he have another tier to climb game-wise? Statistically, no. Like, his stats, even with increased success, they've plateaued. He's always going to be a top 20 to 25 club guy. Never going to sniff that top 15, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. He's good at everything. It's funny you'd say his forehand is great, but again, it's pretty solvable what the game plan is to play him. So, like, is his ceiling defined now? I guess that was, and it was a topic of a full podcast, but I want your thoughts here as we look at the confounding all-stars because you'll see a theme to my list. Is that one of the biggest questions as we move into next season? Like this group, is there another level to climb? Well, for Rublev specifically, no, I don't think that's a big question. Like I, I, it sounds like Zverev was on your list of most confounding players coming into this year. Is that right? Uh, he wasn't because I know what he is and it just is a belief okay. thing. Like he is just like a barbershop topic. It's like, let's just have this debate. Will he win one or not? 
Well, to, okay, I, I realize I'm not answering your question, but going back a couple <laughs> steps here, he, he is one of my top five. And the reason why is I, I think we've all forgotten how good he was playing when he got hurt at the French Open against Nadal. So he missed all the rest of 2022, came back, struggled for the first few months of this past year or this year still. Um, and I don't know whether the last six months we can say this is the true Sasha and what was before that wasn't the true Sasha. I don't know if that's if that's fair. But if it is, then we're not talking about a challenger for number five. We're talking about like a solid top three guy again. Like the level he was at when he was hurt was number two or number three in the world, at least according to Elo at the time. Uh, and as we've been saying, you see flashes of it. There's no doubt the talent there, the question whether he's going to be as consistent as he was then. So if he's coming back to that level and, you know, the guy who won two out of three round robin matches at the tour finals, one of them against Carlos Alcaraz, it makes you wonder. So, I mean, Rublev, you think, is he going to finish number five next year? Or is he going to finish number nine next year? Like that, That's the range to me for Rublev with Zverev, like, I mean, he could be number two at the end of next year. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked. He could also be number 20 at the end of next year. I'd be a little bit shocked, but I shocked isn't the word for it. Like I, to me, like he's, maybe it's not newly confounding to your point. Like we, we could, we could be having the same conversation four years ago, but it's still awfully confounding. It's a fair argument to make, and so he's on your list formally. Zverev is one of your confounding all-stars. Ugh, this is why yeah. I love working with you, let me just say, from the start, because I love that this segued so beautifully. Why Sasha Zverev, the case for—to add to your case, you look at the record against top 10 opponents this year. 4-14 Four and 14 sounds really bad on surface value, but I would point out two things. One— working his way back from what was a really severe ankle injury at that French Open last year. It was a full snap. It was gross when it happened. Like You knew something was wrong. So he loses his first eight. Cincinnati onward, he goes four and six against top 10 opponents. Perhaps most notably, he gets three wins over the top four guys. He beats Medvedev and Cincy. He beats Sinner five sets U.S. Open. He beats Alcaraz first match tour finals. He also, for what it's worth, he had had Andre Rublev's number throughout the course of their career. Rublev got him every time they played, I think the first four through the course of this season. He writes the ship beats Rublev at the Tour Finals as well. Again, Sasha Zverev also, despite the early season struggles, again, he's one of eight players to end the season top 20 in both hold and break percentage amongst top 50 players. And if you, you know, uh, if you cut out the first five months of his year and go French Open onwards, he would be one of six guys to crack into the top 15 club. And by the way, you want to hear the top 15 clubs end of the year, Jeff? Because it's your, it's your yeah. website. You know I like to accumulate <laughs> these stats. Top 10 in both hold and break percentage this year, Djokovic, Sinner, Alcaraz. Boy, does that make a lot of sense. Sometimes the numbers tell you things, folks. That's why I like to look at them. Top 15 club, Medvedev and Grigor Dimitrov, which is just like, I have been beating this drum all December, but I test and the numbers love Grigor right now. And would argue he's maybe playing better than he played in 2017. That's a discussion for a different time. Top 20, Zverev, Rublev, Hachinov. Top 25, Fritz, Tiafo, Safulin, and Kasparud. Those are the 13 top 25 in both hold and break percentage guys, to, or excuse me, 12, to end the year. I mean, again, he has the big wins. The numbers are trending back in his direction. 
he has a first serve that can just straight up win him free points. Like you want to break things down specifically, first serve win percentage, Sasha Zverev amongst top 50 players ranks actually lower than I would have expected. You look for Zverev, where is he on this list? Outside of the top 15. That's surprising in terms of first serve win percentage. Again, in terms of hold percentage, Sasha Zverev is a top 15 guy. And I think he has proven that uh, over the course of multiple seasons now. Again, like why I'm not confused is because he's been a top 10 guy pretty much every season of his career. And I guess the it's the only confounding question is the same question that's remained. For a guy who has proven he can play the highest level of tennis in the world, like why can't he do it in a semifinal and final consecutively? Like why just hasn't it clicked? And I guess that is one of the biggest questions cuz he has and you made this point in your article he has accomplished more than Medvedev has, totality of career, across surfaces, across majors, etc. Medvedev has world number one. Medvedev has the major title. Medvedev's the Hall of Famer of the group. It's a fascinating dichotomy. Yeah, and to me, like, I, I agree. It's, it's, he's, he's a perennial top tenor. There's no question about that. He's probably going to be in the top ten at the end of this year. But to me, the gap between number six and number two, let's say like that's as big as almost any other gap in the rankings to me that you, you can be confounding if your if your range of outcomes is number two and number six, um, which is, I mean, it's a good situation to be if you're a player, <laughs> if, the, if the downside is, Oh, I'll just be number six at the end of the year. But, um, but that's the, that's the question. He could be that good. I mean, what I, what I did to, to really go overboard in preparing for, for this conversation, I've been meaning to do this forever. So thank you for giving me the impetus to do this. I, I worked out a, a, a basic forecasting system for next year's year end ELO ratings. So all that goes into it is we take a player's current age, we take their current year end ELO, last year's year end ELO, and the year before that. So as it turns out, I mean, this current ELO rating is by far the most important. That's like two thirds of the, of the forecast. Uh, and then the previous two years ELOs are basically just to, to counterbalance that if the player has had a really, really off year or a really great year, because you'd expect them to bounce back. And then the age is just something typical, like older players are expected to go down a little bit, younger players are expected to go up and so on. So if we had done this at the end of last year, uh, when Zverev was still holding his ELO rating from when he got injured, uh, his age combined with that high rating, combined with the fact that Djokovic was expected to decline because he's as old as he is, Zverev was forecast to be the number one player in the world at the end of, right now. If we if we run this system a year ago, now I mean there's huge error bars, just enormous error bars for something like this, and he was only going to be number one by a little bit. But the point is, he was there. With his actual results, none of this, like, if he puts it together, none of if he grows up, he was there. Uh, he's not there anymore. <laughs> not not anywhere close. But that that's the level that we're talking about. Uh, and I wanted to explain that a little bit so I can so I can refer back to it as we talk through the rest of this list because it we will be returning to it. There's nothing I enjoy more than when you have to, or when you choose to come up with a formula to help <laughs> accentuate the points of this podcast. So I had well, a smile I, on my face right away. I, I don't know how did, how you do all these subjective judgments all the time. So I'm like, what, what does confounding even mean? I don't know what a confounding player is. Like, let's come up, let's come up with a formula. So now I have a formula. I can list 
I can list 150 players by confounding this. <laughs> That's, I like that you formally – again, this is why I love working with you. And for what it's worth, much like my eye test has confirmed, and I often use the ELO ratings to help confirm what I'm seeing, Zverev is fifth in overall ELO to end this 2023 season. He's sixth in 2023-specific ELO, and I'm laughing because the guy he trails in fifth is Grigor Dimitrov. So again – Folks, the numbers never lie. And I would argue that the numbers within a certain website might all be related to one another, but the numbers never lie, folks. Grigor Dimitrov was that good down the season's home stretch. All right, Zverev's your number one. I'm going to move over to my list now. Uh, And again, this is a guy who I think has to belong on this list and probably has belonged on this list for the past couple of seasons because the highs have been so extraordinarily high for this player. And yet when the lows creep in, they creep in in seemingly dramatic ways. Of course, I am referring to Hubie Hercots, the 26-year-old who ends his year at number nine in the world. And he ends number nine in the world in what was, I would say, a pretty forgettable season until he goes out and wins the Shanghai Masters to end his year. And, you know, for Hubie Hercots, you look for him overall 45 and 22 on the season. The big number I have for him, he went 18 and four in first matches of events this year, which was a degree of consistency we just hadn't seen from him previously throughout the course of his career. But again, you look at the signature events on the calendar, second round U.S. Open, fourth round Wimbledon, third round Roland Garros, fourth round Australian Open, nothing particularly notable until, of course, he goes and wins Shanghai to end the year and makes a Basel final as well, Paris quarterfinal to top it all off. He's a guy with now two Masters 1000 titles. There's just not a lot of players in that next-gen crew who can say that about themselves. Andre Rublev certainly can't say that about himself. And I'm pretty sure Kasper Ruud can't say that about himself either. And yet, you know, again, he's nine in the world. I don't know if that feels right either. I'm just... I still don't know what the Hoobie ceiling is because outside of one signature Wimbledon run, that's really it. At the majors. That's all we've gotten from him. And yet, clearly, this is a guy in the right conditions who serve, finesse, can dominate opponents. Where are you with Hercots entering 2024? Well, he wasn't on my list. We we had a little conversation with uh, about Hercots and his three-set record. Because mm-hmm. he has this ridiculous three-set record, or had one. Um, now, I have it still, in front of me, just... It. In case you want that number, he, by the way, played yeah. 77 matches this year, 39 of the 77, more than half, just over, go the distance, 25 and 14 wow. in three setters this year. It's a pretty good record for Hubie Hercots considering how many he played. Yeah. And the question is whether that's sustainable, right? That we need getting to that many three set matches is probably not super encouraging. Like if you're a top 10 player, you should be winning more in straights. I would, I would think, I mean, I would like to have the numbers on that too, but I'm, I'm assuming that other players around that range aren't playing half their matches or aren't going the distance in half their matches. Um, so I kind of lean back on, on what I know, which is what we know about tie breaks. So he's got a big serve. He's going to play a fair number of tie breaks. He didn't actually win that many this year. He looks like he, he played 60 tie breaks. He won 32 of them. Last year, he played 48. He won 22 of them to less than half. He should be doing better than that. So for some reason, he's not converting the tie breaks, but he is converting the three-set matches. 
I'm not sure what to make of that. That feels like something I need to, to dig into more. Um, but the overall performance, actually, I mean, it seems like he made a positive step forward, not a dramatic one. Like going back to my my forecast here, last year at this time, his year-end ELO was 1949. My projection for him would have been a mild step back to 1917. Instead, he went up to 1983. So that's about, that's, I just, I feel like I'm, I'm turning to a computer and I'm only just spouting numbers, <laughs> at you, but that's about, that's like a 66 percentile performance. It's sure. better than what you would have expected from him. Not like mind bogglingly better. And I would say like, maybe there's some luck in those three setters, just not on the tie breaks. I'm, I don't know. Like I, I also find it confounding the, the slam performance. That's, yeah. that's puzzling. Maybe there's some bad luck. Maybe if you're the sort of person who lives and dies by the tie break and keeps going the distance, like that's kind of, that's going to bite you in five set matches. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, I can, I can also see why being that type of player who can, who can just seven, six, seven, six, your way through top 20 opposition you're going to stumble into a master's title now and then. And I mean, that's basically what he did. It's, it's not like he, it's not like he went full Nalbandian and, and plowed through the big four to get those master's titles. I mean, he, he executed when he had to, but I mean, he didn't, he didn't make my article about potential additions to the tennis 128. We can say that. <laughs> Fair quite. enough. You look at the last three years, 15 and four, 11 and five and 17 and five this year at the hardcore 1000 level events at, you know, again, Someone who's that good at those events, who's made that many quarter, semifinal, or better runs, there's got to be a U.S. Open or Australian Open quarterfinal or semifinal flirtation in there at some point. And I guess why he's on yeah. this list for me is, you know, last year he was over 90% hold percentage. 90% of the men's game is elite of the elite. Now you're flirting with Isner seasons. Now you're flirting with peak Roger Flatterer seasons. Now you're just, you are talking about the best of the best serve. Peak Kyrio seasons. Had to sneak that one in. Uh, best of the best seasons. This year he regressed to 88%. That's still third best on the tour. Trails Djokovic, Trails Tsitsipas, that's it amongst top 50 players. He has a weapon. He has ability to uh, define the terms of engagement in every match that he plays. He has, you know, I always talk about size. It's not as quantifiable, but 6'6", and as fluid as he is as a mover, and to have the skill set that he does to be able to play drop shot, play slice, play volley, do all these different things. It's also that he has in identifiable weakness that you can look at his forehand, particularly when pressured by pace and say, that's what has to change. Like I'm still betting on his upside, the totality of his skill set, and that foundational weapon he has with the serve. Like, I don't know if I'm willing to quit on his upside yet, particularly now that I know that he's defying your confounding formula, Jeff, like maybe there (laughs) is still more for him to tip into. Maybe the one of my reasons why not, is he is he's what 26 27 now yeah um 27 in february okay so he his return points won last year this this season was 34.5 his return point one return points won last year was 34.7 so i mean he's he's pretty solid at that level like my magic number which i know we've discussed before i've talked about this on the podcast before the magic number is like 36 37 you're not you're not going to be an elite, like solid top five contending for slams guy, unless 
you're at 36 or 37. The only way around it is to be Milos Ronic and possibly also be lucky, either be Milos Ronic and super smart or Milos Ronic and lucky and get like 34% where her crash is at now. And then you could, you could land like number four at the end of the year. So somehow he's got to take this game, which is pretty well established, which matches his body type matches what you're saying about the slightly dodgy forehand and somehow win at least two percentage points, more return points. And I don't want to say he can't do it. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, but historically there's not a lot of precedence for that. It's not easy for him. It's not going to be easy for him to do it. And unless he does, he's, he's going to be, he's going to be the alternate at the world tour finals again. Yeah. It's it's a very fair thing to claim. And by the way, the reason that stat came up in the past was the Ben Shelton discussion, which is where is Ben? Uh, And I think he was like under 30% at that point. He finishes at 32.6. I'll have to do this at a different time and filter out where he was like US Open onward to end the season. And if there's some projection there, but a modern day Rayonich, I don't hate the comp. For Hubi Hercots. Like, it's more backhand-centric no. than forehand, and he has hips that, you know, Milos Raonic, I guess, never did from a movement perspective. He's the Shakira, the Shakira version of Raonic. That's how we'll say it. His hips don't lie. Um, yeah, like, I don't hate it. Like, a Wimbledon final. I guess that's the uh, the question is, is there a world post-Jokovic when there's some uncertainty, Berrettini's injured again, you know, whatever it may be, why can't Hercots make a Wimbledon final? I think it's in the cards. Well, the the literal answer to your question is he's got to win more than half of his tie breaks. Yeah. And that that was always, always Ronich's, not always. It was often Ronich's calling card that he was the guy, whether through luck or smarts or savvy, whatever. Ronich won a lot of his tie breaks. He won more than he should have. And Hercots, where he is in the rankings, with the percentage of points he wins, he should win way more than half of his tie breaks. I mean, maybe not 60%, but somewhere closer to 60%. And if if you're Hercotch on grass, you're going to play tie breaks in every match on grass, pretty much. And you, you got to be winning more than half of them. So that that's the answer. If he can, maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe there's something he can figure out. Maybe it is just a, a, a tiny margin thing, but that's that's the obstacle he has to overcome. Yeah. All right. Well, Hoopy Hercots is one of my confounding all-stars. A tier one, by the way. I have three tiers. He's one of my two, my two tier one confounding all-stars. So I guess this is the MVP of the confounding discussion. Let's go yeah, to your... In, yeah. In hour four, we'll get down to tier three. <laughs> yeah. When we do, when we do part four of this, this yeah, episode on... This is a two-month podcast, my friend. Strap in. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we're I, going for, I'm going for the record. Uh, this I'm is... excited. I said yes to this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't call you Jeff Confounding Sackman for nothing. Um, all right, who's number two on your list? Okay, I promised you a top three player. I didn't actually rank mine. I just came up with five. Uh, I'm saving a fun one for number five, but then I promised you a top three player. Um, Yannick Sinner is on my mm. list. And, and let me give you two reasons why. One is listen to these year-end ELOs. Okay, year-end 2021, 1967. Year end 2022, 1995, year end 2020, I'm sorry, 2020, 2021, 2022 is 2020. This is not easy to talk about when the years overlap with the ELOs. He was between 1966 and 2026 for the last three seasons, like a pretty tight range. You could pretty confidently project this guy might improve a little bit on those numbers because he's as young as he is, but he's in that range around 2000. And this year, 
he finishes the year at 2197. I mean, within shouting distance of the top of the list. That's enormous. Like that's a 95th percentile performance, according to the math I did. Uh, and that's it might not be the very highest of regulars, but yeah, it's behind Safulin. But I mean, other than that, he he outperformed expectations more than anyone else on tour besides Roman Safulin. So the big question for me is, I mean, a huge amount of that rating comes from the fact that he's beaten Djokovic twice lately. I mean, that's there's nothing you can do to help your, your ELO rating more than taking down the top dog. But here's the big question. When he beat Djokovic at the Davis Cup finals, his dominance ratio, that's a ratio of return points one to, to serve points lost. So basically you're reformulating total points one. His dominance ratio was 0.82. He won 49% of those points. Back at the tour finals, round robin, dominance ratio was 0.89. He won exactly half of the points in that match. I guess everybody knows these numbers, but when Djokovic beat him, just, I mean, in the middle of those two matches, Djokovic demolished him. I mean, statistically anyway. Um, in the two matches he won, he just squeaked through in, in, in matches that honestly could have gone either way. So does, does Sinner go into 2024 as the guy who beat Djokovic twice and is going to play like that? Or does he go into 2024 as the guy who was playing well enough to hang in with Djokovic and got lucky? I mean, so... I mean, is he, do we look at him as someone who beat Djokovic twice or as a player who might as well have just lost to Djokovic three times? That's well, what's confounding to me. That's, it's a fascinating premise, and he's obviously one of the superstars, the big headline storylines coming out of the season, particularly the, with the fact that he made post-U.S. Open tennis relevant in a way it often is not. And lost in those final two weeks of three matches with Novak Djokovic for, if you want to include the doubles, is the fact of what he did to win that Beijing 500 title, which in my opinion was more impressive than the wins over Djokovic, which is he beat Alcaraz and Medvedev back to back. And I think doing that coming off of a loss to Sasha Zverev at the U.S. Open, that was kind of that final bump he needed to consolidate that. No, I'm a tier one. It's a top four conversation heading into 2024. Now, the premise of can he challenge Djokovic? Can anyone? Like, that? that's the magic. That's You're right. Like, that is the, the really the last question for him to climb. And that's that I should make clear that before any of this started, even before Beijing, I think Elo had him as the number three player in the world. Like Elo has been bullish on him for two years now. I think really ever since he won the next gen finals, it was immediately bullish on him and it's continued to be bullish right on through. His Elo rating has been higher than his ATP ranking virtually every week since then. So I've been bullish on him. The numbers have been bullish on him. This is just like, do we treat him as, ho-hum one of the big four or holy crap this guy is now ahead of Alcaraz as a Djokovic challenger I mean and, and that sounds a little ridiculous even to say because of Alcaraz's cachet for a, a year or so before that but the numbers say that at least based on treating those two wins over Djokovic as full-on victories then he's that guy right now and Alcaraz is not. So the question is like with, with Zverev, I was saying like, it's confounding to me. Do we treat him as a potential number two or do we treat him as a ho-hum number six with Sinner? Is he number one or two, or is he number four? Yeah. Uh, and that's, 
that's what's confounding to me. Not, there's no doubt in my mind that, I mean, a, a healthy center is a, a top four player. It's just a matter of, is he about to break through? And when, when Djokovic finally fades or retires or whatever he does, it ascends into the heavens, is, is center the guy who takes over? I mean, he might be poised to do that. I like the idea of Djokovic just ascending to the heavens. That's how it ends, and we all get to watch it. He wouldn't have it any other way. Um, it's a great question because, again, it's like if you're making a list of who's next to win their first slam, he's number one on everyone's list, right? Like you'd have to put him above Zverev at this point, certainly above maybe you'd say, well, Kasparud's been really good at Roland Garros and consistent at any major in a way Sinner just hasn't quite been able to break through anywhere yet. I mean, th- the thing is, and <laughs> I know how much you abhor this, but I test-wise, like I don't see a hole in Yannick Sinner's game. Statistically, I don't see a hole in Yannick Sinner's game. Everyone's second serve could use some improvement, but he has gone about improving just about every number of his over the course of the past few seasons. And even, you know, that growth in the second serve, 50% three years ago, 54, uh, 4.4% two years ago, 53.4% last year, this year, 56.1% metric. For those of you curious, 56.1%, third best amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour this year. The only guys he trails, Djokovic and Alcaraz. There is some poetry uh, in that fact. Like Break percentage, he has been over 26.5% for the last four years. And this year, 28.6%, his best to date. I watch him hit backhand returns on the rise. And again, these I always say the numbers in tennis more than anything else are meant to confirm the eye test because tennis, until Jeff Sackman came along, was the ultimate eye test sport. And you didn't have metrics to quantify things like forehand cross-court effectiveness. But eye test-wise, he can do all those things, Jeff. And that's why like the numbers catching up with what I've been seeing with my eyes – I do think he, if you're making a list of who's going to win a first major in 2024, the first name has to be Yannick Sinner, like of newcomers, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, the biggest question is he's at that level where he's going to be playing big games, big points against the other guys in our, our big four right now. And it, does he win them? I mean, according to these last couple of matches with Djokovic, he does. He can like he can he can stare down match point against Djokovic and win a point or two or three. I mean, how many guys can you say that about? I mean, historically zero. You can say that about. Um, and the question is, is that a real thing? If it's a real thing where he can go do that in Arthur Ashe Stadium against Novak Djokovic again, then I mean, holy crap, just send him straight to the Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> that just feels like it might be a little optimistic. I mean, we might have okay. a few more years of number three, number four. I don't know. But that, I mean, that's why it's confounding. That's why we're talking about it. Yeah. The big thing is he so beat, next... Medvedev, yeah, beat Medvedev multiple times down the home stretch as well, flipping a rivalry it really struggled with. That's just – all signs are up. But I'm curious, yeah, who's next on your list? Give me the next name. Let's see. Well, this is not going to surprise you because you've mentioned his name eight or nine times already, <laughs> Grigor Dimitrov. Oh, uh, I like He didn't – it's interesting talking about overperformance because I mean, obviously he hugely improved his results this past year, but he did, according to my ELO based forecast, he didn't improve. He didn't outperform quite as much as Sinner did. That's how much Sinner outperformed expectations. Uh, but obviously Dimitrov did as well. Now I'm curious, do you really think Dimitrov right now against this field playing the way he is, is that, is that as good as, or better than, peak Dimitrov 
don't know, however many years ago when he was still in, in the middle of the year, the, the true big four and, and actually threatening those guys? It's a great question. Hair-wise, no, is where we start. <laughs> um, I do think there is a – I'm trying to think of the right word. There's a decisiveness, certainly, but there's a, an intent, maybe, to Grigor Dimitrov's shot selection that didn't exist quite as much in 2017 when, athletically, he was a little bit more gifted, maybe, and could get away with more improvisational things. But the way he just baits players into challenging his on-the-run forehand, and he has officially supplanted Roberto Bautista Agu as the best on-the-run forehand we have in this sport, mortal category, which means no Alcaraz, no Djokovic, no Nadal, obviously. Um there's just a precision that everyone always associated with Grigor Dimitrov that I just think he actually has now, and he lacked early in his career. I think he comes forward much more decisively, comes forward with much more intent as well. Athletically, he's fine. He is healthy, and he's moving extraordinarily well right now. I do. I, it's like the same way. I don't know if you saw the 60 Minutes interview, and I can't commend John Wertheim enough for the interview he did with Novak Djokovic, but he asked Djokovic, like, straight up, and as a debate we had recently on one of these shows, who do you think would win? 2011 you or 2023 you? Now, notice he left out 2015 Djokovic, because I don't think there's any discussion there. But Djokovic said, I think 2023 beats 2011 me because I handle the pressure better. I know what to do in certain spots more efficiently than the younger me would. Yeah, he's faster, but I'm a better tennis player. The You know, again, it's not quite as big of a delta for Dimitrov athletically from 2017 to now. But I don't think that's an unfair assertion to make about Grigor's game. I, I'm sure the numbers disagree. Well, I would very much like to know what the numbers say. Like one one of the one of the projects I just dreamed up that I don't have the numbers or even the the, the ability to generate the numbers is. I would love to. We have enough video where we could measure speed. We could figure out like how how fast were these guys at different stages of their career, and clearly they clearly they're slower. I mean, one number we do have is we have sprint speed for baseball players going back several years, so we can watch baseball players slow down. We've always known that baseball player speed peaks at like age 24 or something, which is roughly the age of a major league baseball rookie. I mean, basically as soon as you arrive in the major leagues, you start slowing down if you haven't slowed down already and tennis players come in earlier. So maybe, maybe they peak maybe after their rookie year on tour, but I mean, they slow down now. It doesn't look like it that much because you watch Djokovic chase down a drop shot and it sure looks fast. It's 10 times faster than I'm going to chase down that drop shot, but it's, it must be slower. So the question is, how much slower is it? How much does it matter? Like, what it, what do you really give up when you lose a half step? Um, it's easy to quantify if you want to know, like, are you going to beat a throw down the first baseline? But if you're going to say, like, if, you, if you're a half step faster, how many forehands does that mean you're able to really plant and get set for? What, what does that mean in terms of how many more points you win? I have no idea. But that would start to answer that question. And I suspect that uh, whether it's Djokovic or anybody else, players are always going to answer that question the same way. <laughs> they're they're always going to say current day me beats 10 years ago, me or five years ago, me, I am smarter, even if I'm slower or whatever. Uh, I don't know if they're wrong. I would just say I'm not nearly as confident as they are. I think that the youth, the speed matters a lot more than they think. One sort of side benefit I got from my little forecasting exercise for this was it gave me another piece of evidence for what the peak 
age is of a tennis player's career. And this isn't specific to this era. So it's going to be skewed a little bit by previous years when players were, were apparently peaking earlier. But what do you think the peak age is of a tennis player's career? I'm going to say 27. 26 is what I got. So yeah, 26, 27. Price is right rules though on this show. So I lose because <laughs> I went over. Ah, well, no refrigerator for you. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> fair. Uh, but you got it. So, so that means that Djokovic has been declining, at least at a relative average, for a decade. That's a decade. Crazy. Which, in, in, in one sense, it makes it tremendously remarkable what he's able to do now. In another sense, it, it tells us, oh, holy crap, was he that good a decade ago? Was he, was he that flexible, that fast, that physically resourceful, that he's declined from that for a decade and he's still this now? I mean, it's just, it's unreal. But so, so again, I don't know the answers to these questions. I would love to know the answers, but I, I would lean towards 2017 Grigor or, or 2011 Djokovic in, in debates like this with, with all due respect for what they're still able to accomplish now. That's completely fair. I, I mean, again, it's fascinating. It really is a fascinating topic. And certainly I wonder even beyond foot speed and measuring that, how about reaction time? Like, is that something we can quantify as well? How does that change when with, you know, improved anticipation perhaps, but just slower reflexes as you get older? Like, how does that reaction time change as well? Look, if if I had to put money on the line, I agree. I would bet 2017 Grigor. I'll take the young man over the slightly older and more mature one. But it would conditions would matter like that that would also be the thing on a quicker surface i think i'd take the older grigor because i don't think the physical drop off has been that immense and i am curious 2024 how do you project dimitrov forward like does this feel like a replicable season for him that's that's what makes him so confounding right yeah. i mean it, someone someone who lands in the 92nd percentile of their forecast the answer is almost always no you don't think it's replicable so i mean I, I thought I had there, I had a 2024 projection, but I'm guessing it's, I mean, it, it would be a major step backwards, just statistically speaking. You, you wouldn't expect this sort of thing to happen again. He basically was at a 1900 ELO or slightly lower for three years. And then all of a sudden he ends this year at 2010. So, I mean, maybe he doesn't go back to 1900, but you don't expect him to clear 2000 again. Uh, but I mean, I test to use your words, like, I don't see why not. But then again, like Dimitrov has been around for 10 years plus now. We've been watching him and admiring the game and, and the style and all that. And according to the eye test, he's been playing this well for his whole career. <laughs> he, just the, the match results didn't correspond with that. So, I mean, I putting putting money on it, which is really the only the only answer that matters. Like, you don't expect him to replicate this, but it would sure be cool if he did. Yeah, no, it's it's really well said. And yeah, again, to go full circle here on something we talked about earlier, it's an indictment on the current group of twenty four to twenty eight year olds. You let this version of Grigor go from under nineteen hundred Elo for these past few years to fifth in twenty twenty three specific Elo in the tennis abstract specific rankings. I like your list, so let's keep rolling through it. We can rapid fire through mine at the end. Who's number four? Number four is your friend and mine, Feliz Auge Aliasim. Mm, keep rolling. I like again we haven't overlapped, which is the most fascinating part thus far. Really? Yeah. Well I'm curious to hear the rest of your names then. I, I thought this was the obvious one. So, 
Okay. He finished 2022 ELO of 2042. Uh, pretty clear top 10 player, I think. He finishes this year 1898. Uh, that's that, that's not good. Uh, that's not good at all. That's basically the 20th percentile of his of his forecast. And I mean that you don't need the numbers for that. You can watch him play this year, and it's it's distressing. The the, the double fault rate is out of control. I mean, I don't think. Uh, it doesn't really look like he has a game plan or he's willing to execute the one he has. I've always thought, even when he was playing in his best, I've always thought, why is this guy getting into so many rallies? We've had this conversation before. Like he has such a big game, such big weapons. And it seems like every third or fourth point, he's playing like a 15 shot rally. Like he's Roberto Batista Agu and he's not sorry, Felix, but you're not RBA. Uh, You've got to play like, you're this huge serving, big hitting guy. Basically, you've got to play like your Milos. And he doesn't play like these Milos as soon as the ball comes back. As, as soon as he can't put away a surplus one shot, he he plays like he's a clay quarter and he's not. I mean, even if he's got Tony Nadal in his box, he's not suddenly that guy. Uh, so that it, it's always felt to me like there's a route for him to be a top five player and he has the tools to do it. But he's choosing to it. It's like what people were, were saying about Guillermo Monfils for so much of his career. Like the talent, obviously there. The tools are obviously there. He just opts for a style of play that doesn't exploit that. So I just want to put Milos Ronich in Felix's box, allow unlimited on-court coaching, and watch Felix become a top five player like he's always meant to have been. Uh, I don't think that's what we're going to get, but I mean, what we get in 2024, it could be anything. I mean, he could be the top five player. He could fall out of the top 50. Yeah, I guess for me, why I am less concerned or confounded by his season is so much of it was riddled with injuries. Like so much of his struggles can be directly attributed to never having a full four week or six week stretch to really regain his footing on tour and when he finally got that stretch which I consider from Laver Cup onwards at the end of the year because I watched him play Laver Cup and like I test wise there was a defined difference in how he was playing to even two months prior on tour and you know you started to see it at the end the Basel title run and I don't remember how he did in Paris but I don't think he did horribly in Paris down the season's home stretch now Again, for a guy who's as young as he is, a guy who had been on a pretty linear trajectory upwards in his career, and a guy who, by the way, is on every youngest to do this for the first time since list uh, of his generation, this year was a major step back. It was a major concern. And I mean, for me, it's so funny how we view it in, and you're right, we've had this debate before, in opposite ways. Like, I know what his plan A is. His serve, his forehand should keep him in the top 20 for the remainder of his career. It's what does he develop outside of that that to me defines his ceiling. And what went so astray this year is the serve and the forehand were off. And I guess, again, I would attribute a lot of that to injury. I could be. Um, I mean, I I would caution putting too much weight on the indoor swing. He's done that for us before and not built on it. And yeah, my philosophy is, is the opposite of not what you explicitly said, but what I think yours is that if you've got that big serve plus one game, you've got to just max that that out. And then you've got, you've got to do the Huey, John Isner, Milos Ronich, like pick your, pick your obvious exaggerated version of that. That's who you've got to be. You can win a lot of tennis matches with a pretty rudimentary version of that if you've got the tools because so few people have the tools 
and so few people can actually handle those tools. Uh, he's got them. So, I mean, why is he messing around with Nadal as a coach? <laughs> it seems like it would be, I mean, I can, I can imagine what he would dream about. Like if I played like, like he did, it's like, Oh, wow. What if I could grind like, like Rafa? Like, well, yeah, obviously it'd be the greatest tennis player in the history of planet earth. If you could do that, but you won't because you're not even close to that. Now you're never going to be. And then if you get to the 99th percentile of all humans in clay court grinding, you're still not a challenger level player in terms of clay court grinding. Like you can be, you can become great in that sense and not be good enough to play on tour. And if you are a surplus one guy, you have to, you have to recognize that. Like you've been, you've been gifted with these things that give you a route to victory and you don't have to become Goran Ivanisevic out there, but it's better to lean in than to, to try to become a more complete player. It's very fair. I would say I expect a bounce back. For, like I'd be shy. He's 28 in the 2023 year-end ELO ratings. If he finishes outside of top 16, I'll give him the extra spot. Top 16, I would be surprised. But yeah, I, I think that's fair. And again, getting back to the roots of the success, it's a must for him to start 2024. All right, you want the guy who I thought was going to be the sure thing overlap for us, a guy who I think you could name the confounding all-stars after. I think it's Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. He's the player I might be more confused about than anyone we have on tour right now. He will be one of my make-or-break guys heading into 2024, so I'll do more on him a little bit later. I want to hear your thoughts. 26 in the world is where he ends his year. For what it's worth, here's his record the last three seasons. 27 and 23, 21 and 26, 32 and 27 overall at the tour level these last three years. During that stretch of time, he's made just one final, was the Monte Carlo final in 2022. Hasn't fallen out of the top 50 rankings in any of those three seasons. Has flirted with top 35 status for most of it as well. Like, are we ever going to get just like a coherent six-month stretch from him when there's no peaks and valleys where it's just a constant steadiness because athletically, he has it. Like him, it, he's Tommy Paul, but hasn't put it together yet. Like it's a lot of similarities there in my mind from a game style, athleticism perspective. I don't know what to make of him, Jeff. Where are you with Davidovich Fokina? Isn't he also Tommy Paul with a markedly weaker serve? I don't know. Like I kind of like his technique better across the board. Like statistically, yes. I test wise, I know that's where things get a little bit sticky. Like I don't think he struggles with the serve in his career hold percentage uh, at the tour level. Seventy four percent. It was a career high seventy eight point two this year. I don't think he struggles foundationally because of the serve. I just think his plus one choices sometimes are just atrocious. Like he he never makes the same decision twice in a row, even if it's the right decision. Yeah, I'm certainly with you that at a point-to-point game-to-game level, he's one of the most confounding. You certainly don't don't know what you're going to get from match to match. Um, I don't find him particularly confounding because at a at like a week-to-week or season-to-season level, you you do know what you're going to get from him. You're going to get this mess, like you're talking about. We agree on that. We're just we're just choosing different lenses or, or different uh, different levels of focus to view this at. As I I don't think he quite has a game, the game to be. I mean, I think he has a top 20 game potentially. I'm not sure he has a top 10 game. And the, I think the serve is, it's just not big enough. I mean, you, you, with any of these guys, you can, you can show me a highlight video of, sure. you know, 
20 great serves and you can you can show me some bombs fine but he's got to consistently do it no matter what he does with the the plus one stroke he doesn't really have the have the weapon at least to win on hard court so he had that monte carlo final a couple of years ago um that seems within the realm of possibility that he'll do that sort of thing again but yeah i mean i, I yeah, I mean, I I guess that's that's where I'm at. Like, I'm I'm not confounded by seeing him as a perennial number twenty five in the rankings. Like, there have always been Spaniards around like that who weren't like who weren't legends who could look really good on one day, never really had a big serve to bomb their way through off days, and he fits that mold for me. So I've never I've never really looked much deeper than that. Fair enough. I guess for me, it's that he's just so athletically gifted. And again, if you put together a highlight of his best 10 minutes, boy, would they compete with anyone's. And Would they be as good as Quarantine Moutet? I mean, well, it depends on your flavor of choice. Like if you like slices, no. If you like <laughs> line drives combined with slices, combined with like somersaults after you hit the forehand winner, then maybe you'll like it. You know, that there's a Twitter account called Did Davidovich Fokina Dive Today or Fall <laughs> Today or whatever. Like it's one of the best accounts we have. Um I just okay. Here's a random question, and it might be in front of you now. But if it is, don't look. How old do you think Davidovich Fokina is? I feel like everyone we've talked about today is 26, so I'll say he's 26. It's a great guess, and it feels like he's 26 because he's been around in our lives for a while. He had that I forget what clay court event debut it was, but like 2018, 19 when he was really young. He's 24. Like hmm. he's a 99er. He's still young. He hasn't hit his Jeff Sackman 26 year peak, and that's where I'm like. What if this guy does, you know, he just has that off season where he goes, you know what? Enough. Like, I've got it now. It, it's all come to me. As it as it's happened for, you know, Yana Kaufman, I just we just had Yana Kaufman on the Cracked Interviews podcast. All of our listeners should go check it out. One of my favorite questions I got to ask him, and I loved his reaction because he's like, you know, I actually did think of it at this perspective is Yannick is 32 years old this year. It's the first time in his career he only had to win one match to make the quarterfinals of an event. And I was like, just that sensation of knowing, hey, you only got to play once you're in the quarters now. What was that like? And he was like, it was crazy. He's like, I, it was <laughs> shocking. He was like, I couldn't believe I was like, really? Like, this is – I have a bye? Um, and so, like – what if for Davidovich Fokina, this is the year it comes together? What if this is the year where it's it's only peaks? Or not even only peaks. What if he does it for three months consecutively? Like, he's never even put together a three-month run, let alone a nine-month run. I think he still has it in him. Well, let me just say, as an from an armchair psychology perspective, there's a lot of players we've talked about who I would believe it if they put it all together next year. He is not one of them. Okay. I don't see it. Which doesn't mean anything. I don't know anything about stuff like yeah. this. But I mean, I, well, let me put it a different way. I'd be awfully surprised. Yeah. But Could hey, you, I mean, he, he'd be a great, it would be great for tennis if he did that. Could you find a formula that projects, will this guy get it together? Like, do we have to really get into the decimal places to try and short, sort that one out to project who's going to get it together next season? It's so many things I've looked at are some variation of that question. I mean, minus the minus the humor. It's like, how do we figure out who's going to make a big step forward? Because it's so many tennis numbers. They're so stable. I mean, yeah. they're so stable that they're overwhelmed by the noise. Like we were talking about Hercotch and he went from like a 34.5 return points one to a 34.7. It's like nothing, it's like 0.2%. Uh, and when, when you... 
I mean, the fundamental question is like, who are the players who improve, whether it's return or serve or both? And the, the, the easiest answer is they don't. Most players don't improve. If you have a good year, what happens the next year is you play better opponents and your numbers stay the same. I mean, of course, there are numbers that go up and numbers that go down, but they generally don't stay there. So it's easy to look back and say, OK, Sinner really made a big step forward this year. But I would argue there's virtually nothing in the numbers you could have looked at a year ago to say this is why Sinner is going to take a big step forward and Alcaraz isn't going to take a super big step forward. I mean, it's it's just not there. So unless unless you get to sit down with these guys and give them a bunch of psychological tests and then maybe wire their brains and I don't, I don't know what the answers are, but I, I'm, I'm not sure they're in the numbers. 1,000%. Last uh, This year, the average hold percentage of a top 50 player across surfaces was 82.7%. Now, the stats leaderboard on Tennis Abstract, when you put in 2022, it looks at the 2022 numbers for the current top 50. But I can tell you off of memory, last year's average hold percentage was 825 like a 0.2% variance from this year's top 50 players to last year's top 50 players. You said it perfectly. The numbers stabilize. And I guess the thing I like, again, there's been some growth for Davidovich Fokina. It has improved the hold percentage in each of the last four seasons, has improved the break, uh, the break percentage, excuse me, pretty constant, but it's over 26% for his career. That would be a top 20 number. We'll see. Well, again, this would be a we'll uh, a Zoom beer or however we do it. We'll wager a Zoom beer on this over under fourteen. No, 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 that's too high. Do you drink dogs? Not really. <laughs> to be that's honest. what I thought. Yeah. So, so that, what would you do with this beer? Well, it's not that I don't drink. It's that I got a jawline for TV, Jeff. Like, come on, I got to stay <laughs> in shape with this neck. Um, and I so, see, yeah. yeah, no, the truth is, it's just like, why do I need to get drunk? I'm already pretty loopy. Um, over under 15 and a half. I'll take the he finishes better than that. And I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out what the wager is. Do you want the over? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I like that. He is my number one confounding all-star. And I think he's been the MVP throughout his career. Because just talk about confusing. I'm going to mention one more guy for my list. And then I'm, I'll do a, a massive honorable mention at the end. I promise here. But I don't want to okay. keep you for too much longer. Um, Go for it. You mentioned Roman Safulin, and that felt like a gateway, a doorway for me to bring up that conversation. He was one of my guys in consideration for my final spots. I'm curious how much of an outlier his result was to your formula because <laughs> certainly it was a breakthrough season. I mean, quarterfinals at Wimbledon, the high headline result, but man, I watch him play and being who I am, the nerd that I am, like people in our circles call him Romo. Um, and people remember Romo was one of the top juniors of his age group for the longest time. And it was injuries more than anything else that prevented his rise early in his career. I feel like he's here to stay. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, one one thing that I didn't mention when talking about predicting the late breakouts, put it together type of issues is – I think play it, it all else equal. If you've got one player who won a junior slam or was a junior number one or something, you go with that guy mm -hmm. uh, because it might've been injuries. It might've been off court distractions might've been a, a bad coach match or something. But in, if you're trying to isolate, like who are the guys who have the raw talent that might manifest itself eventually, like having been a great player at 17 or 18, that tells you something like there's it's not far 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 from a guarantee but like i say all else equal i'd go with that so that makes me think 
Yeah, it, it seems it, it seems real. And to answer your question about how much of an outlier he was, I generate a 95% confidence interval for all these guys. So for for Safoul and his his projection for this year was an ELO of 1700. The 95% range was from 1534 to 1857. His actual ELO, 1857. He hit, <laughs> he hit the outer edge of his of that confidence interval um, to a T. So so yeah, he's um he couldn't, I mean, theoretically he could have done better, but he couldn't have done much better than that. I watched a lot of him this year, and he's I don't see any reason why he take a step back. I'm not sure I'm willing to go much bigger on him. Like I can. I could see him peaking in the top 20. I'm, I would hesitate before betting another beer on much better than that. But, but yeah, I mean, the game is certainly there. I mean, that's what's so tricky when you start looking at guys like that, like then you go watch a challenger finals, like, Oh, well, those guys games are there too. So that's what makes it so tough. I don't know, but I mean, I'm not betting against him. His ability to take a ball early on the rise. You're just like, come on now. He just – he hits a tennis ball beautifully. I don't know how else to say it. It, it. He strikes the ball extraordinarily well. He's quick. He can beat you to the spot. To see him lose to Zverev, then beat Zverev in these back-to-back weeks, those are the sort of adjustments you love to see from a player. Wimbledon quarterfinalist, obviously, as well, gives him a cache of points to build around in those first six months of the season. And again, one of 12 players to finish the year top 25 in both hold and break percentage speaks to the fact that he can do a lot of everything. I agree, like – I mean, here's the thing. I don't hate his serve. Like, he hits his spots pretty well. He's pretty springy. Feels like a modern-day David Goffin point nine. like, if that makes sense, where it's just like, yeah, he's going to be pretty good. He's going to be a tough out. I agree with you, like 16 to 25 in the rankings. That feels like his range where you'll see him seated at a slam. Like, sure, but, you know, maybe he'll pop in a fourth round here or there, quarterfinals at a master. I don't expect him to break that top 10, but I agree with you. I like talk about out uh, exceeding expectations and breaking out in a way that deserves a little bit of a shout out. So Safulan, the last guy I wanted to bring up here, who was the last guy on your list? I was curious. Okay. Last one on the list is uh, Maxime Cressy. Ah, uh, of course it is. I love it. And and I've got a bonus one to go with Cressy, and I've got a theory to run by you. So okay, so so Cressy was the opposite of Safiul, and he basically hit the low the low range of his projection. And the only player in the top like 150, the people I ran this algorithm on, the only player who was worse than that in terms of underperforming his projection was Mark Andrea Hustler. Uh, which, I mean, of course, everyone listening knows all about. Well, I can't Mark believe Andre. that. I love the lefties game, let the record say, about Hussler. Like, talk about a guy who on the right day, you're like, oh, who are you? Exactly. And, okay, so for the those few of your listeners who don't know, like, he, he's not a full serve and volleyer like Cressy, but he, I think he probably serves in volleys more than anybody else except for Cressy, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the surface and all that. But, I mean, maybe half the time he serves in volleys on his first serve, something like that. So our two are two big first servers in the top 100-ish. I don't know where they're ranked exactly now, but in, in that range, they both just cratered this year. And I mean, I, I actually don't know enough about Hitler to know whether there were some injuries involved there, but they both cratered this year. Here's my theory. Tell me if this is completely nuts. So you've, we've seen the various, I don't know if they think pieces or think tweets or whatever, but people <laughs> are saying the servant volley is back, right? 
like Alcaraz serves in volley sometimes. Everybody knows, I'm putting that in air quotes, that you can beat Medvedev's return position with with uh, occasional serve and volleying. Mm-hmm. This is this is the thing everyone's talking about and thinking about, even if they're still only serve and volleying, like one in 20 points. But I mean, it's happening in a way it wasn't happening five years or especially 10 years ago. And these are the guys who are going full out. Like we're, we're going to make a living serve and volleying. And it didn't work this year. So my theory is, Servant volume died for a reason because racket technology reached a point where you can just stand behind the baseline and sharpshoot past these guys. I mean, not all the time, but enough that before you couldn't do it. Now you went from like 45% to 55%. Now you can Servant volleyers can't get away with it anymore. Then eventually people were going to forget how to sharpshoot. Yeah. That was uh, eventually there weren't going to be juniors doing it. You didn't have practice. So there would be a window that came along where some people would try it and it would work for a while. But then all these guys would realize our technology is even better. Now <laughs> we hit these unbelievable mind boggling winners constantly. I can hit any point on the sideline I want with either wing. So my can stand back at the tarp and, you know, hit anywhere he wants, any angle he wants. So we had this window of maybe a couple of years where we could talk about the return of the servant volley. And then all these returners are like, <laughs> right, whatever. <laughs> You're not going to serve a volley on me and you can't anymore. So now, now that window's closed. That's my theory. What do you think? It's a fascinating theory. It's closed as a game style, like a, a predominant game style. I don't think you can be a majority servant volley or majority meaning over 10%. No, 80% because like, Ben Shelton, I would say, serves some volleys probably twice per game. And the reason he can do it is because the angle he opens up, particularly on that lefty slice wide, like all he has to do is make a volley, and he's won the point if he lands that first serve. You know, similarly, you mentioned it, guys like Sinner, Alcaraz, Djokovic, using it in spots, particularly when matched up with someone like a Daniil Medvedev. The tactic as a play in one's toolbox, it'll never fully die out. The majority servant value, I mean, it's tough to put that burden on like someone who has Cressy's forehand. If you're going to make Hoosler the moniker, like Hoosler's a top 80 player. That's a good, like, he, he's good. And he can do some things from the baseline in ways Max Cressy's forehand just does not really allow him to do. Is the servant volley dead? No, I'm going to reject the theory. And I say that with respect. I'm going to reject that it's dead. So how, how often do you think Shelton serves in volleys? I'm going to say two out of every five. I'd go 40%. Okay. And how, let's see. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm it not practicing, more, not using my website. <laughs> um, and this year, well, let's see a tour level Shelton. Shelton has in his career won 67% of serve points. Okay. So, okay. You're going to say he serves in volleys 40% of points yeah. and what do you think his win percentage is, given that his average serve win percentage is 67%? On those serve and volley points? Yep. Probably 80, 85. Okay. So we have... So should he be doing it more? Is this where we're going? Well, that is one question you could ask. So here's what we have. Um, the match charting project has charted 17 Ben Shelton matches. Okay. They're mostly tour level matches from the last year or so. We've got a couple of um, challenger finals in there. Okay. Um, he has serve and volleyed on 12% of points. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's probably a little higher than that because I don't consistently chart aces as serve and volley points uh, because it's not always clear if you're actually coming in. So it might be that 
he's maybe coming in, but hasn't really fully committed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe 12 is on the low end, but it's it's not much higher than that. It's not 40. It's not 40. Yeah. And he wins 68, 68% of those points. So actually, given that I don't have it broken down on at least where I'm looking now, I don't have it broken down my first and second serves, but you have to assume most of the serve and volley points are first serves. He wins 76% of his overall first serves. Mm-hmm. He wins 68.5% of serve and volley points. So to the extent they're all first serves, he's giving something up when he comes in behind his serve. It's a great argument, statistically. I like, again, this is why it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I mean, but it's still a tool in the tool. Like, what if he's playing to Neil Medvedev? What are the stats in the if, if a serve volley stats in that sort of match when he needs it a little bit more? Like, that's why it's worth developing because if you have a guy pinched back like that, and there's more people than just Medvedev who take those sorts of return positions, particularly for for Shelton, like. I think on clay courts, he's going to be able to hit kick serve wide, serve and volley on that due side as a tactic for him, as a foundational piece of his clay court success. With how much kick he gets on the ball, like I think foundationally that's something he should be using with frequency in his game. And I'm going to be monitoring that stat moving forward. It's a, You know what? I don't reject the theory entirely, but I'm not ready to accept it yet. Well, one thing I would love to know, this is this is up there with my speed over time as like the, the dream stat that we're probably never going to get since it's so incredibly complicated is like, I think what you just said is that is a pretty, a pretty widely held theory, which probably means there's there's truth in it. If all these smart people are, are agreeing that it's a thing is even if you're not winning servant volley points as much as non serving volley points, or you're not winning them enough to make it a clear cut thing, it's. The tactic is you do something to make your opponent think about it. So they then change their tactics and win fewer points going forward. That's, that's basically it, right? Sure. So, so the question is, what is that? Does that mean you're forcing Medvedev to move in a step or guess more or something? And if he does guess more, if he does move in a step, what does that do? to his ret- the effectiveness of his return. Like, I, I don't even know how to start to quantify those things. Sure. It seems like theoretically you could, but that's what I'd like to know. Like, how long does the effect last? Do you need to serve in volley once every five points to keep Medvedev on his toes? One every, it does one every, every 20 points good enough? Because that's probably good enough for a drop shot. I don't know. But the, those seem like fundamental questions to the, so that if all the point of the serve in volley is, is, to get in the other guy's head and make him do something that will pay off on future points, then you really ought to know how much you have to do it, what it, what the payoff really is, as opposed to just feeling like you're on top of the mental game or something when, when maybe you're losing, you're actually losing points in the short term on the tactic. Here's what I will tell our listeners. There's one of you out there who this is the perfect project for, who's not doing anything, who can submit all the match charting data to Tennis Abstract, where there's all this information available about how you do that, how you get started. We give Jeff all the data possible, and I promise if he has the data, he'll figure this out for us, folks. So we just got to get you the data. Yeah, the more data would help. I'm not uh, honestly, I'm not sure whether match charting data is enough for something like that. I mean, for, for, for giving you a concrete answer of like, how short-term effective is the serve and volley? Step, yeah. Does it mean he? You one thing I never looked at that I you could look at with the charting data is say okay after the serve and volley, yeah. point, what happens then? Like did, does he win more non-serve and volley points yeah. on the very yeah the next point or the next point in the same court? That's a question I can answer. I mean we've only got only seventeen matches for Shelton, which isn't huge, but 
you can answer that for some players. Uh, and I'd be curious to know what those answers are. My guess is like most tennis analytics answers, it's ho-hum. It's about the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the error bar is so big to be meaningless, but it, it would be good to know. Yeah, for sure. We'll put it on the list of, again, people put in that match charting project. All right. Before I let you go, honorable mention. You ready to hear the rundown? Yeah. Tier one for me of the confounding all-stars, Hubi Hercots, Davidovich Fokina, we've discussed them. Tier number two, I call this tier the, again, you always belong in this category. Stefano Tsitsipas, who we alluded to earlier. I'm just like, what are we doing here, Steph? I think that's a fair question. I did have FAA in tier two because I think he's a permanent confounding all-star as well. And again, I, I just didn't have him listed specifically. Um, just a second, Alec. You follow Tsitsipas on Instagram, right? I do not. Oh, well, I mean, okay, I don't have an Instagram is the truth. Okay. If you did, you would know what he's doing right now. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's, it's not, it's, it's not a full focus on tennis, yeah. I would say. And it's also understandable. I would yeah. say some scholars would argue you are correct. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to agree with you there. FAA on the list. Cam Norrie's on my list as well. Like, yeah, he would have, he was an honorable mention for me too. Yeah. I'm sure in the underperformance, uh, zone like he had to be on the higher side like not quite Cressy extreme but not great but is he it, 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 can we put him in the same category where he has this very unique game yeah. that people were facing for the first time in their career and then once he'd been around for a couple of years and players had lost to him and felt stupid about it they realized you know what we've just got to figure this out and then they did mm-hmm. Is that, is that what, what happened to Nori? Well, I think that's the question. And that's why I think next year is so fascinating because if he has a bounce back, then the answer is no. It might have been some sort of other tactical issue. If he doesn't have a bounce back, the answer is yes. It was this one year, damn one year, but 24-month stretch where physically he was just on another level. And again, people could not solve his game in the moment. But that's my tier number two. Tier three is the, again, new additions to the confounding all-stars Everything I said about Davidovich Fokina apply to Francisco Sarundolo as well. A guy who has all the gifts. The question is, will it all click? Because I think he has the game for it too, Jeff. Yeah, I would even throw Juan Manuel on that one. I remember the first time I saw Juan Manuel, I was like, oh, this is this is the good Sarundolo. This, this is the one who's really going to make it. And that was like two years ago now. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a good observer of tennis I, or something. I've always but... been Team Francisco. I'm not going to lie. Okay. They just they play by the way like two brothers. Like one of them, you know, Francisco was swinging away from the baseline, and Juan Manuel was like, "I'm just gonna keep making it until he misses." And it's just like, yeah, you grew up playing together. Like I, it's just so abundantly clear. Next on the list again, and we'll rapid fire through. You just tell me, confused or not, Matteo Arnaldi. Oh, not confused at all. I'm I'm 100% camp Arnaldi. I love Arnaldi. Ooh. I think. It, I'm not real. sure I'm putting Arnaldi in the top 20 next year, but Arnaldi is definitely a top 20 player. Maybe I wouldn't go much higher than that because he's so much of a speed first guy and that doesn't age well. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not confused. I love Arnaldi. I think he's, he's outperformed to get where he is now. Um, and I think he's going to keep doing it. Another guy I'd put in that go fan camp of just no identifiable weakness all around. Very good tennis player. Medvedevich, next-gen finals champion. You confused about him at all moving forward? Um, yeah, kind of in the different type of player, but same kind of confounding as Davidovich Fakina. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the other guy I just watched? Shoot, 
I'm blanking on it. I watched a challenger final of someone else with a really, oh, Duhay Adjukovic. Is that how you say his name? Sure, Adjukovic. Yeah, however it is, yes. Adjukovic, yeah. Um, Adjukovic, either way. It's like an anagram for Djokovic, so it's really confusing. (laughs) But he's the same way. Like, really big game. You'll watch him for even this specific match I watched. It it wasn't quite like 6-1, 1-6, 1-6, but it was that kind of thing where you watch him for a set. It's like, holy crap, why is this guy playing challengers? And then you watch the second set, it's like, oh, why is this guy even on challenger level? It's like just up and down. And yeah, Medvedevic has the uh, has all the tools. I mean, he's he's up to sixty six, I think, on the Elo list, and he's still a little bit outside of the ATP one hundred. But you can see him making a slam fourth round or something with ease. But yeah, I don't know. It is, there's always five or ten guys at challenger level who seem to have those tools and it's just a matter of who becomes this year's Chris Eubanks or fill in the blank and could definitely be him. We, I could also see him still rank inside the top 100 next year. hundred percent. He's one of the, I feel like, again, I want to learn more, but his Astana match versus Cordo is one of my favorite post U S open matches we had. Um, again, I will just be direct in, in uh, confounding. Yes or no. Musetti. Yes. Yeah, I agree. We did Sefulin Popperin. Mm, pass. I like that answer. Von Asha. <laughs> I don't know. Luca Von Asha. Oh. No, I'm I feel like he's like Arnaldi. Oh. I'm I'm I mean not I'm not as strong. Yeah. I don't know. Probably have you seen his forehand? Yeah. It's it's not pretty. Yeah, but look at the hair. Yeah, and the backhand is so pretty. Like that's the thing is it's so fascinating. Again, he's confounding because he's fascinating. And he's, again, what I, what isn't confounding? French men's tennis had its best season in like a decade and a half in terms of projecting for the future. There are some real prospects there. My last one for you. People not seeing how good talent Greek sport is. Talent Greek sport is really good. And so I guess that's my most confounding thing. Not Greek sport, but the people who don't understand Greek sport. Yeah. I mean, this is where my, my historical perspective comes into play. Like there have been random, it used to be Eastern Europeans. Everybody thought it was the same. Now it's, it's not so much them. It's like the, the Germans, the Dutch, like the, okay. there's all these like six foot four Germans and Dutch guys who like can hit a bunch of aces deserve to be in the top 30 someday. I don't know. Like I, this is a caricature and it's probably stupid and my Dutch friends can tell me why I'm wrong, but I feel like there, there've always been guys who are at that level who get forgotten. And I guess I, you have to be okay with that if you're a tennis fan. I'm, I mean, he's, he's on the edge of the top 20. Is that right? Yeah. What? And I, he, I he's like 22. So he, maybe he'll crack the top 20. If he makes a slam quarterfinal, then more people know about him, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm fine with the fans having this blind spot. Mm-hmm. Botik van de Senschkalp is one I will never forget because, of course, everyone knows Botik van de Senschkalp, notably two days older than me. Uh, and so that – and then I, I made this comment on another podcast, but it really grinded my gears. So I have to give him some grief about it once again. Our dear friend, Gil Gross, um, as we established earlier, and this is going to be where we end the show um, – 
we were doing a, some content together. We were talking about Nicholas Jari, and he goes, you know, Nicholas Jari's a little bit older. Like, he's at a later stage of his career. I go, how old Nicholas Jari? And Gil goes, 28 years old. I go, yeah, he's five days younger than me. Go fuck yourself. I was like, for you to say that of all things, a man who's five days younger than me, ugh, was I, oh, your team Serena's same birthday, right? I feel like you've mentioned it on this before. Yeah, Serena's a year younger than me, I think. Okay. She born in 81. So she has one year to accomplish what you have is what you're telling me. I mean, is that, that's, that's not Unfair fair, Serena, at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not, I hope she doesn't hear this. All right. I mean, it's, Let me just it's say, in a really awkward spot. Some scholars have argued that your contribution of Tennis Abstract is more significant to the tennis world than her career. Some have argued. That scholar might have been me, and there might have been a few beers in my system. Um, yeah. But I'm just saying, some of our yeah, some some scholars' degrees have been revoked. Yeah. <laughs> we invented a, a whole power tennis country club around Serena, so that might even be a more significant impact than tennis abstract itself, as well as getting David Kane to eye roll at me every time I say Serena Williams te- power tennis country club. Which, by the way. Just one final note before I let you leave. Go read Tennis 128 Expansion. Go read 1973 Redux. Great things happening there, but maybe better than anything. Jeff, they unlocked the safe. We found the photo of Arena Sabalenka this year at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Like, what do we do next? What's our next obstacle? Yeah, uh, well, she has I, I've been predicting for years she was gonna win 20 slams in a row. So she has 19 to go. Well, she has 20 to go since she's she ended her streak with one. I can root so for that. So 20, 20 slams in a row. Yeah, that's going to make it difficult for Ego, who right now is not eliminated from the greatest of all time debate, which, again, I'm just working all the bits in here now. But, again, Jeff, you are the best. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show, and I speak for everyone in the tennis world. We all use Tennis Abstract. We all appreciate the time you put into making it as a resource available to us. And, again... Thank you for making your time available for us today. Absolutely. It's always a good time, Alex. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Abstract founder Jeff Sackman. Again, I cannot state this enough. Eternally grateful for his website, without which my job would just be astronomically more difficult. In fact, the first year we did this podcast, I was unaware of Tennis Abstract. The moment it came to my attention, life just got easier. Life got better, and obviously you listeners here day in, day out, the statistics I refer to from that website. Again, it's the ultimate database for anyone who wants to follow the game like we all love to do here at CR. So a thank you to Jeff for all he does day in, day out, and a thank you to him, as always, for joining us on the show here today. With that said, again, Nerd Week continues here on the Mini Break Podcast feed. If you want to hear the WTA confounding all-stars, just go check back on Monday's episode. If you want to nerd out and learn about some junior tennis results, Listen to Tuesday's episode. We've got two more fantastic shows coming for you this week. So, of course, be on the lookout for more mini breaks dropping here in the near future. Of course, if you're looking for more content in the meantime, go check out the Cracked Interviews podcast. Austin Krejcik, world number one doubles player, as well as Yannick Hanfman, the number 51 single 
tennis player in the world. They've joined me this week for conversations about their seasons, what's clicked, and where they go from here. We've also started our college tennis crack rackets, top 10 countdown. So if you're looking for college tennis content, the GSP feed is the place for you. All of these pods available to subscribe to, to like, to review, wherever you listen to your podcast. And the reason for that is because of the tireless efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has a f- of an editing job day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him. A thank you as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennisstablishpoint.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for the fantastic Jeff Sackman, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We say that's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.